Blog Talk Radio. Hello, this is the Hellbender Book Show on the BookSpeak Network, and I'm your host, Kyle Alexander Romines. A little about me by way of introduction. I'm an author from Kentucky. I'm also a medical doctor. I graduated from the University of Louisville School of Medicine in 2017. My debut horror novel, The Keeper of the Crows, appeared on the preliminary ballot of the 2015 Bram Stoker Awards. Uh, that is the introduction theme to the show. I pressed play a few minutes ago, and it just now started. But anyway, I was just talking about my other books. Um, Keeper of the Crows was my debut. I have seven other books now. My new series is Fantasy. It's Warden of Fall. Um, it's Sword and Sorcery, The Wrath of Lords, The Blood of Kings. Look them up. Look them up. Look them up. They're available for purchase on Amazon in ebook and paperback. So on this show, uh, regular listeners will know, I have been reviewing horror novels and interviewing horror authors. I've been joined by some of my co-hosts and friends. Um, but tonight's episode is going to be not an, not an interview. Uh, it's going to be a little more unscripted. We're going to play around a little bit, have some fun. We have a special guest who will be familiar to you. Um, but first, I'm going to introduce a brand new guest to the show, my friend, Matt Egbert. Matt, introduce yourself to the listeners in the audience. Hey, what's up, guys? How's it going? Why don't you tell the audience a little about yourself? Hey, uh, yeah, I um, I am currently working on my PhD in history at Southern Illinois University. Uh, I have been a lifetime tabletop game fan. I really enjoy uh, Gloom, Gloomhaven is the big game I'm in on right now. Uh, I've known Kyle since middle school. Actually, we—I I can tell you guys some stories about this guy. Uh, we we got into movies, games, video games, sports, kind of together, and we've just kind of been hanging out on and off ever since. All right. Well, let's get started. So I'm going to tell you. I'm going to reveal our special guest for tonight's show. It is Joe Mills, who you will recognize as my regular co-host on the show. Um, Matt, will you read Joe's bio for our listeners? Joe is an avid fan of horror, terror, and thrillers in all media formats, with a strong emphasis in unabridged audiobook. He is also a working professional in the IT industry with UPS, spending most of his time on the clock as a troubleshooter and off the clock as a nerd hobbyist. He has been a committed member of the tabletop role-playing community since the age of 14, which has brought priceless experiences in problem-solving, creativity, improvisation, and creating lasting friendships. Joe is an aspiring audiobook narrator, being involved with theater in high school and college, and having spent a small amount of time as an intern at a major radio station in central Kentucky. A few goals for the future are to go back to school and finish his degree, become an Audible certified narrator, and participate in cosplay charity events for local hospitals. Awesome. Joe, say hi to our audience. Hello, everybody. 
Well, we're going to introduce a brand new segment for today's show, and it is Scary Stories with Joe. So Joe's gonna we're gonna give him a chance to flex his audio narrating muscles. But first, I just wanted to ask Joe, how did you become interested in um, becoming an audio narrator? Uh, I think well, it started. Um, actually, I, I remember it started in the fifth grade. Uh, I remember the first time I'd ever actually listened to an audio book. It was called The K. And I remember the narration was really good, and I'd always been a big reader. But as I got older, I was able to listen to more audio books, and I, I realized that I actually appreciate them better in verbal form. And then uh, when it came to you know theater plays, stuff like that in high school and uh, majoring in theater in college, I realized that that's actually what I wanted to do. I wanted to stories, but in verbalized form. That's so interesting. Why don't you tell – so what's the process like to become an audio narrator? What are the steps that you're taking now um, or have taken? What, what is it like, this journey, um, the process to become an audio narrator? Well, for me, a lot right now it's still been uh, a bit exploratory in figuring out what would go on uh, the demo reel or you know a reel of audio – that I would present to someone if I were maybe to uh, apply to a company and not just do audio books, but like if I were to do radio and like news copy. Um, also figuring out not only the performance part, but the technical and editing parts. I found out that a lot of audiobook narrators actually master their own audio for like audio content. And so when they, uh, you know, shake hands, so to speak, with a narrator, like let's say on Audible, and the uh, the author says, here's my book, it's this long, I'll pay you this much to do it, and the audiobook narrator will go, okay, well, I will, I will turn in uh, a finished product to you with, you know, that's this long and blah, 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 blah. And so for me right now, it's, it's been learning um, the technical portion and not just actually recording the audio itself, but how it's recorded, how it's uh, mastered, and formatted. Matt, do you have any questions for Joe? No, that, that's actually really interesting. I didn't, I didn't know that so much went into the audio, audiobook process. Um, I do have a question though, like, because as a as a historian, I am just fascinated by oral history, um, and oral history itself is uh, like it's much different than written history. You actually have like the tone, the, interna- the intonation, the tone. You can kind of read a lot into oral history that you can't just if it's written on the page. And I imagine that's the same way for audiobooks. Um, I just like my question is: so when you listen to audiobooks or you form audiobooks, and then you watch maybe a film based off these audiobooks, I know that people have their lived experiences where they will read a book, and the experience is so much different for them watching the film. Uh, how much different is that for audiobooks? Because I know a lot of audiobook, uh, audiobook readers will like do their voices. So it's not just the character, it's an entirely new voice. And how does that kind of experience play into you watching movies that are based off these books? Sorry for a long-winded question there. No, it's fine. Um, honestly, I've noticed that the experience is um, it's a lot like whenever – differences between just reading a book and watching the movie 
And the same thing sometimes happens with uh, reading a book and listening to an audio book. Yeah, like uh, sometimes the audio book narrator will, you know, they'll speak to the author. And actually, Kyle can uh, can talk about this. Um, I've been helping him try to find an audio book narrator for one of his latest books. Uh, and we've been talking about um, accents and dialects. Okay. And I, if I remember correctly, Kyle, you said that uh, the gentleman had actually specifically asked you about um, what accents, like what dialects, because one of your characters has, he has the same name, but it's pronounced two different ways depending on which region they are in the book. So uh, Kyle would actually be able to have some viable input on this as well. Kyle? That's right. I actually did a conference call two days ago. Uh, the gentleman who's, audio, who's narrating uh, the first book in my uh, Warden of Fall series, at the Sword and Sorcery fantasy series, uh, set in an alternate history Ireland, uh, his, his name is Matt Addis, and he's a real pro with audiobooks. I think he was nominated for the 2015 Audible Narrator of the Year Award, actually. And we had a conference call, and he went through, and he had a Gaelic translator go through and uh, find the original pronunciations of all these words that I've looked up in my research in the books. And so he ran the list by me, and after that he ran the list of characters by me. He said, tell me about these characters. Um, what do you see as their voice, as their personality? Where are they from? So we have, for example, we have Danes or Vikings. Um, we have uh, people with Irish accents. We have Albans, people from Great Britain. Uh, we have Caledonians, um, Scottish. So we have all, a huge variation of dialects that he uses. And so um, it's just a, a, it requires an amazing amount of skill. And Joe, I know you can talk speak to this because a few weeks ago you did in our interview with Michael Hawley, uh, you read an excerpt where you narrated the voice of Jack the Ripper, uh, and I just thought you did a fantastic job with that. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, yeah, that was actually, um, that's something, that's another element that I've been diving into. And that's one of those I found out the hard way. You cannot master it overnight. Um, something like that, something like dialect building, it takes, you know, months or years to really get it down. And so I'm still in the, in the phase now, or I'm just learning to build that up. You know, I've done little things over the years. But nothing like, you know, an hours long duration audio book where not only do you have all sorts of different words that you're going to run into that you've never pronounced in this dialect, but you have to keep it even and you have to keep it consistent. And so that's actually one of the reasons that I had recommended that guy to Kyle was um, I'd listened to this man uh, in a couple of his books and he was he just sounded like the right guy for the job. All right. Well, Joe, with all that said, I think that's the perfect time to flex your audio narrating muscles for the audience. Um, one of the types, there are different types of narration styles. Uh, there's authoritative, there's dynamic, um, and one of them is storytelling. And Joe is an excellent storyteller. I'm sure Matt can attest to that. Um, and so Joe will, since uh, this is a horror-themed show, oh, I'll let you go. Go ahead, Matt. Well, I just even remember at my wedding, just Joe's speeches. Like, they were just, everyone was on their toes just, like, listening to the next step because of what a great storyteller he is. Thank you. All right. Well, I will play now, if it, if it works this time, the intro <laughs> to Scary Story Segment with Joe. <laughs> 
So, first things first, uh, I need to go ahead and let you all know that what I'm about to tell you is 100% true, um, to my experience, anyway. Uh, second thing, spoiler alert, I survived the encounter. Um, back in college, um, I had been hanging out with a few friends, and a couple of them were into the idea of amateur ghost hunting. Uh, that involves uh, recording things on a video camera, as well as recording things with an audio recorder to try to pick up, um, I think it's EVP, electronic voice phenomena. And basically they were trying to hear things or see things um, from, you know, like from a spiritual or a supernatural perspective. And so they had decided that we were going to visit the Perryville Battlefield in Kentucky. And so it was only about, I think it's like an hour and change from where we were all going to college. And we packed up in my friend's car and we went there. It was a, it was in the fall. And one of the important things, it was kind of cool, but not cold enough to see, uh, there wasn't like any fog or, or anything like that. So we get there and there were five of us. There were two that were actually the amateur ghost hunters. The rest of us were just kind of tagging along. And there was a little, like a little cemetery thing with some headstones. So they were taking pictures, recording things. We were doing our best to stay quiet. And um, they thought they found, uh, they thought they heard a couple small things on the uh, the tape. Nothing really stood out though. And then maybe they saw a little orb thing in one of the digital pictures. But again, very could be very easily dismissed as like a dust mote. Um, Part of the field is actually cordoned off by like an old wooden fence. So people aren't supposed to be over on that side of the fence. So naturally, we stepped over to that side of the fence. Um, we all uh, kicked our legs over and got over. And we were just standing around discussing things. And then we were quiet while they took pictures and recorded. And then we also noticed that there were some houses in the distance. And so all of a sudden we started hearing some drums and it wasn't like a full drum set. It was sort of like a, like a drum you would hear literally during a bat, like a, um, and we thought for sure what was happening was maybe someone who was in that house was, they probably knew that people trespassed and they were probably, uh, they probably checked and then decided to freak us out. So we heard that, and it uh, the thing that really got me about that at first was it sounded like it was coming from different directions. And it was a very open field, so there's not a lot of things for the audio to, uh, for the noise to bounce off of. It sounded like it's coming from somewhere else. So that happened, and it kept happening, and eventually we decided that we recorded enough of it because we did get that. And we decided to step back over the fence and the, the moment the last person in the party had stepped back over the fence, the drumming stopped. Um, at that point, we decided that our work was pretty much done and we were going to get in the car and go home. So as we're getting in the car, uh, there's a little playground set thing with like a couple of swings and I think like maybe a small slide. And important thing to note was that there was no wind. Um, it was a very calm night, like no wind whatsoever. 
So we're getting into the car, and we hear the squeak of, like, those um, the rusty chains on the swing. And we look over, and the swing goes from dead still to a full rock back and forth motion in no time at all, as if someone had directly pushed it very hard, and it kept swinging back and forth at very high height. And, um, again, there were no, there were no trees or anything around thing close to the parking lot. So there was nowhere for anyone to hide. Like maybe if they were pulling a string or something very hard and doing that, there's no spot for that person to hide. So naturally that did freak us out a little bit. They got that on camera and then we got in the car and we left. And so I thought that was going to be all of that. I thought that was going to be the end of that. And, that was going to be Joe's fun little ghost story to tell to friends at parties. Um, however, the activity did not stop there. At the time, all of my friends were living in the dorms, and I was living with my grandparents in town uh, in Campbellsville. And so my grandparents were up here in Louisville because my grandmother was in the hospital, which means that I had the house to myself. And it was about a week or week and a half after that, um, after the event at Perryville, where I come home from school one day or one night, and I step inside the house, and I instantly get the sense that I am being watched. I am being directly observed. Someone is intently looking at me. And so um, I pull out my grandfather's pistol, and I actually I had a pistol and I had a sword because, you know, edgy college student. And I proceed to check the entire house. Uh, there were multiple curtains that were always open and blind. So I closed them. Um, I turned lights off in rooms that I wasn't in and I made sure the blinds and doors were closed. And I also went and checked downstairs in the basement where I slept and I didn't find anyone. So put the weapons back and normal night until I was going to bed. Um, I was reading a Dungeons and Dragons book research as, as, as was my normal habit at the time. And I put the book up, turned the lights off and tried to go to sleep. And again, I got the sense that I was being directly observed. Um, couldn't shake it. There was a little window in my, my basement bedroom, but I peeked my eye open and I couldn't see anyone there. I couldn't see anyone peeking through. And there was a street light outside bright enough and in the right spot where if someone had been looking at me from there, I would have seen it. So again, closed my eyes and told myself, I'm just being super paranoid. And that sense of being observed kept slowly getting stronger and it didn't go away. Like, I did my best to ignore it, and at one point, I'm laying directly on my back, and, you know, I had pointed up to the ceiling, and I got the immediate sense that something was right above me, and it was looking at me, and it wanted me to know that it was looking at me, wanted me to know that it was there. And at that time, there was a very large, loud crash upstairs. Um, something had moved upstairs. And so I, what I want to tell you is that I was incredibly brave and I grabbed my sword back and went upstairs and looked around. That's not what I did. 
what I did was revert to childhood. Um, I threw the blankets over me, and I poked a hole in the side of the blanket uh, where, like, with just enough for an air tunnel so that I wouldn't, you know, suffocate under the blanket. And I cowered under that blanket. And that strong sense of being observed was right there the whole time. And I don't know how, but eventually I somehow fell asleep. And I woke up the next morning and everything was fine. Um, honestly, expected to see someone standing above my bed. You know, I was pretty sure that I was going to die or something. So I went upstairs and all the windows and doors were still locked and closed. Um, nothing really had been moved around except for a clock that was in the living room. Um, it had come off its uh, nail on the wall. Um, the nail was still on the wall, oddly enough. And the clock was all the way across the room. And it was legitimately stuck on 313, which I find very odd because I didn't fall asleep at 313, but um, it also had the battery in, still in there, but I guess the battery was dead. And I remember uh, I took the battery out and put a new one in and the clock it just never worked again. So I guess maybe it had fallen hard enough that it had broken, but it was stuck on 313 um, whenever I found it. And so I immediately told some friends about it. I told some people who I knew would believe me. And I told some people who I knew wouldn't believe me. Um, and then I stayed with some friends in the dorm until my grandparents got back. And Kyle, if you want, there is also a, uh, a follow-up to that that I don't think I told you in person last time. Do you want to hear that one? I think you did tell me last time, actually. Is it what happens later on after your grandparents passed? After my grandma passed, yeah. Yeah. So, I want to okay. save that for our our next – we're going to pick up this story. So for all of our listeners – Did you hear me? Yeah. Sorry. Yeah, I accidentally pressed mute on my phone with my lip which I didn't even realize you could do. Like, I didn't know the screen of my cell phone was sensitive to lip. Um, That's legitimately impressive. um, But what I was going to say is um, that we will continue. It did it again. Wow. All right. I'm going to just put it on speaker and hold the phone away from my face. I didn't even make contact with the screen. Okay. We will continue with part two of the scary stories with Joe segment. So all of our listeners out there tune in next time to hear Joe continue his story. Um, now we're going, so that's scary stories with Joe. So for the remaining half of our show, we're going to do a tabletop game segment with Matt. So we're switching gears now and Matt's going to become the focus. Our, our special guest host, Matt Egbert and Matt, why don't you tell, um, first of all, what's the difference between the type of tabletop games you play, whether they're horror or not, and a, and a board game, and the traditional kind of board game like Monopoly? All right. Well, in the traditional type of board game, it's mainly based around luck. And a lot of, a lot of American games 
are based around luck. And these are these are good for just like your average family who isn't really interested in strategizing at all. Fun for all families, uh, the whole family. Uh, a, a toddler could join in if they understand the rules and play. And like that's things like Monopoly, Sorry, Trouble, uh, the classic Candyland, Shoots and Ladders. So it's based around luck more than much. You're either spinning something or you're rolling dice. And the difference between those and the type of tabletop games I play, um, they're more about strategy. And a lot of them come from Europe, because in Europe there's more of an emphasis on strategy than just pure luck. Um, Some of these games have made their way over, and there's become a hybrid of sorts, which um, Bloomhaven is one of these, where it's both luck and strategy um, intertwined. And that that seems to be the wave of the future right now. Because um, when it's just purely strategy, um, it becomes, well, I mean, I guess Dungeons & Dragons does have the luck aspect, the D20 element, but there's less of that in these types of games. So it requires requires a bit more of an older audience, someone with more like critical thinking skills, and in my, from my experience, they're just more fun because they're not as repetitive. You don't get that, oh, this plays the exact same way every single time. So you get this whole fun, um, can go multiple ways, different every time. And there's usually more of a storytelling aspect to it as well. Okay. Well, how did you personally, and this question will go out to Joe too after you answer it, how did you become, what was your introduction to this world of tabletop board gaming? How did you get into it, and how did your love of these games develop? Well, my introduction to Dungeons & Dragons, Joe will actually remember this, um, was my junior year of college. Actually, it might have been my senior year of college. And uh, that was uh, Joe invited me, and I stayed up all night, and we rolled a character and created a character. It was so much fun. That got me hooked, and then the game itself was a complete and utter disaster. Um, <laughs> yeah. Joe probably remembers yep. the details of that too. Um, yep. But yeah, and then after that, when I uh, moved to Carbondale for my PhD program, I just started playing with some people in the history department. Um, a bunch of games that were similar, but they were board game focused, um, and of course shorter in length than Dungeons and Dragons. And that's kind of what got me into it. Um, and I've just kind of been following uh, Facebook groups and um, making purchases. And also, one of the um, comic book shops here rents out games or allows you to just play them in the store for free. So that's another way that I've become involved in that. And they have, almost every night, they have someone running games. And Joe, what about you? How did what was your introduction to the world of tabletop gaming? Um, that introduction started when I was fourteen. I was invited to I wanna say it was Dungeons and Dragons, but it actually wasn't. It was another tabletop role playing game. I was invited by uh a guy I went to church with and he and some friends that uh were at seminary with him were playing an actual Lord of the Rings tabletop role-playing game and so I was invited my brother and I were invited to play with them and then we played on the regular 
until I went to college. And then uh, once I was in college, I started picking up more actual name brand Dungeons and Dragons. And then from there, I was also introduced to other uh, board games, like tabletop games. And then also, um, Matt and Kyle, you can both attest, a lot of Munchkin. And, like, and I mean, like, a lot of Munchkin. You'd be surprised how many times Munchkin is someone's, like, introduction into these types of games. It's a gateway it game. Well, having... same, it has a lot of the same gameplay, but it's simple. So people can be introduced through it. Well, having said that, this is a horror-themed show, like I mentioned earlier. So, Matt, why don't you tell us about some of the games that are more horror-themed in nature um, that you've played? Okay. Well, first of all, there's, which has become one of my favorites, uh, Dead of Winter. And Dead of Winter is a both a cooperative and a competitive zombie survival game in the um, in the wintry wasteland. I don't think they actually say where it takes place. It might be Siberia. It might be Alaska. I'm not sure. But you are you and your party are completely isolated. Um, hence the name Dead of Winter. And you can play it just cooperative, but also throw in a traitor, an unknown traitor, and won't know throughout the game whether that traitor exists or not. So you will be trying to complete your objective in every scenario, and this is what I like about European-style games in particular. Every time you play, there's like a main objective for the entire group, and that will define how you approach gameplay. So for example, in Dead of Winter, it might be to gather a certain amount of supplies. It might be to have a certain amount of people survive toward the end. It might be to find a cure to a disease. And so you'll be looking, and there's there's the colony, and then there are six different out-of-colony locations. I believe off the top of my head there's the police station, the school, the library, the gas station, uh, the hospital, and I can't remember the other one. Grocery store. Grocery store, yes. So in, you find food in the grocery store. You'll find gasoline in the a gas station. You'll find weapons in the police station. You'll also find other things, but that's the main item you'll find in those locations. And, of course, as you're doing this, there are zombies spawning outside of the colonies. There are also zombies spawning in the colony, and you also have to make sure that all of the people in your colony have enough food to survive. So you're doing all these different things at once. It's really hard to keep track of everything. And if you lose focus on one thing, it can be your downfall. Or we can, you can create your own downfall um, if you're the traitor. Now, Matt, before we move on um, to any other game... I wa- can you tell the audience about one of our infamous games involving the helpless survivors? Yes. So I was playing with Kyle, my mom, and my sister. And my sister, and a, a thing I forgot to mention, is there are about 40 different unique characters with unique abilities and statistics. And my sister had, her name was Beverly, and she is the mother. 
and she becomes stronger the more helpless survivors there are in the colony. I guess they're supposed to represent children or innocents. So she is playing as Beverly, and we, Kyle and I, have realized that we are going to lose this game because there are too many helpless survivors in the colony. So we decide to leave the colony and allow the zombies to overrun the colony and kill all the helpless survivors. We barely had enough morale to make this work, so we decided to do this. My, my mom was all for it. My sister disagreed and decided to stay behind. She decided to stay behind and try and save them. Well, on her turn, she rolled you know, every turn you get um, just like a scenario update and you have decisions to make. Well, the decision she had to make on her turn was whether to shoot two helpless survivors or not. came down to if she shot them, we would win, and if she did not shoot them, we would lose. So she had stayed to protect them, and the choice she had to make was whether to kill the the children she had wanted to protect. So Kyle and I were just overjoyed at the fact that we had, our plan had worked to perfection, and she had gone against it and was forced to make a terrible life decision that she will never forget. Yeah, it showed you who you really are in that moment. <laughs> yes. Joe, have you ever played Dead of Winter? Not a game. I think I've maybe played uh, once or twice. I know I haven't played it like you all have, but the thing is I've, I feel like I have, and then if I remember correctly, that was a alternative to D&D with my crew one night, and uh, if I remember correctly, things did not go as planned. It's a tough game. Um, Eric, can it be, is. There are different I'd, difficulty levels. I'd say the win, the, win, the win percentage is probably somewhere around 30%. It's one of the tougher ones. Yeah. Um, um, so, Matt, having said that, we have about ten minutes or so left, so I want to keep moving on, um, and we can we can okay. do another tabletop gaming segment in the future um, because it sounds sure. like you have you've played a bunch of these games. Um, but let's talk about um, one of my favorites, Betrayal at House on the Hill. Yeah. Yes. Oh boy. Why don't you tell us a little bit about the game? All right. So the trailer of House on the Hill, you start off saying, like, you're different. You can choose between different characters. Um, They're not quite as given as much of a backstory as in Dead of Winter. Um, They just have different statistics. And, of course, some will be good with speed, some will be good with strength, some will be good with willpower, et cetera, et cetera. And you start off, you enter this house. And as you move throughout the rooms of the house, you will build it. So there's three different floors, actually four in the expansion, I believe. But is it, is it four or is it five? Four. I believe it's four. Four. Because you have the, the attic. And, then in and the, as you go along, yeah. as you go along, you build these rooms. And some rooms will unlock items. Some rooms will trigger events. And some rooms will have omen cards. And... Then you roll the dice, and based on the number of people playing, based on the number of rooms that have been opened, there will be certain numbers that you, you have to beat in order to not trigger the taunt. Because if you trigger the taunt too early, you're screwed. There's no way around it. 
you want to last as long as possible before you trigger this haunt. And then, but the fun thing about this game is depending on the room, depending on many different variables, the haunt is different. I believe the base game has 100 haunts, is it? Yes, I think so. It might be a bit less than that. I think it's 100. And then the expansion adds... It might be 50... Yeah, it might be like 50 and 60 for like a a total of 110. And then the the new game has has like 32. But regardless, there's so many different variables. Like, I remember one time I was playing and I was the traitor because whoever triggers the hunt usually becomes a part of it. Um, To quote one of the worst Pirates of the Caribbean movies, part of the crew, part of the ship. Um, But you become part of the hunt. And I transformed into a merman. And the rest of the party was tasked with killing me because they thought I was trying to kill them. I was actually looking for a way to help them. So they thought I was the villain, but really they became the villains. Ooh. And I really I really appreciated that. Uh, sorry if you haven't played that one. I completely spoiled it for you. Um, but that was, that was a very fascinating one. Um, another one was uh, based off the Pied Piper story. And you summon a bunch of rats. And the purpose is to get the rats into um, a room with a ritual circle, I believe. And... My dad somehow got stuck in the basement alone. There was no way down to him. And all the rats were coming toward him. And he somehow managed to kill them off one by one by one by one and survive on his own. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, my sister was not pleased. So I'm guessing she was the, the piper? She was yeah, the piper, and he was the he was a little kid. Uh, Kyle, would you be kind enough to share your experience uh, playing betrayal with both of us uh, on at the uh, bachelor party for Matt and the hotel? Sure. Yes. Yeah. So um, in January of uh, 2018, uh, Matt got married, and we all were there at the wedding. And uh, for the bachelor party, we were doing a bunch of crazy things. I can't can't really mention a lot of them here on the on the radio because uh, of the FCC. But we also play board games, and one of the board games was our favorite Betrayal at House on the Hill. And we had a scenario. So, like Matt said, you all start out as explorers. So at first, there's nobody who's a traitor. And then at some point, like Matt said, you trigger the hunt. And there's all kinds of haunts, like he mentioned. Uh, you might have Dracula's lair or um, the mummy's bride or something like that. And our our haunt that we triggered, I became the traitor. And we had a big group. We had like six people or one, one of the bigger, probably the biggest type of size you can have. So it was me pitted against five other players. And I was the avatar of this enormous evil spider that its goal, it webbed up one of the explorers in the basement. And it was its goal, it put its eggs inside of him. And after so many turns, if he wasn't freed, the eggs would hatch and I would win because my thousand young would devour all the explorers and and I would reign supreme. So together with the spider, I controlled the spider and my character. And 
every turn the spider grew larger and it grew more powerful and it gained more moves. And so it was basically just me. On the very first turn, I killed Joe's character. So yeah, one of the things that sucks is if you get killed, I mean, you're dead. Um, so you have to watch. And um, every side has a different objective every time. Um, so there's just so much variety. I think Matt did a good job of describing the game. Because every time you play, you generate a different house and you have hundreds of different like a hundred or more different scenarios you can play so there's just so much replay value in some of these tabletop games i was just standing there minding my own business <laughs> it was really um, joe, well what i was going to ask is joe why don't you tell us about joe and i are in a board game group here at louisville of five people and we have been playing a variation of Betrayal at House Hill, uh, House on the Hill called Betrayal Legacy. So, Joe, why don't you tell our listeners about and Matt about how Betrayal Legacy, um, what a legacy game is, and how it's different so far from the normal Betrayal at House on the Hill. Certainly. Um, so, Betrayal Legacy is a lot is you know builds a lot like Betrayal on the House on the Hill. However, um, you have these. Uh, family cards. So basically, you create a like a family name fam- with a fa- it's got a family crest on it, and you will build the game again and again throughout different time frames. Like it's usually like thirty, forty year time jumps, starting in like sixteen sixty three or something like that. And so, um, another element is that there are a lot of pieces and cards and rules that do not actually become known until you start to play the game. And so you'll have rule spots in the rule book that are blank until you maybe play like the second generation. And all of a sudden it says, Hmm. put this, you know, like uh, unlock this rule and put it in on this page and, you know, in this field. And um, so you can have heirloom items. Um, You, the end, the, Certain elements of I think of the uh, the building don't change, but like you'll still build the house every time you play, and you will be playing a different member of your family. And the another thing is that's not always 100% the case. Uh, you might actually survive the previous encounter, and if that's the case, then you will indeed be playing the same character again the next time you play the game. So it was like the first time we played was 1660-something. It involved the witch hunt. And then we played the second round. It was like 1690-something. involved another element. And one of the guys playing actually um, was playing the same character. And so it plays a lot of portrayal in the house and the hill. But there are additional elements involved that give it that backstory. And honestly give it that a little bit of, um, I don't know quite, it's got, it has a little bit of gravitas do it like it it feels yeah a little bit more real and i i can appreciate that so awesome. they, they pair back they pair back some of the variety some of the variability but in exchange you have a more directed story um so it's a little more immersive exper- of an experience so it's a, it's definitely a trade-off I'm willing to make. There are 14 stories, and they're all related to each other. There's a larger story going on that we've only been hinted at. And in the future, um, once you finish the base game, 
you you can then use all the tiles and you have even more stories than the of uh, the previous games that are included. So you have like 32 additional stories too. So then it becomes just like the traditional betrayal of the house on the hill, but with some added elements as well. And I, I really enjoy I, it. It's been great. I need to, I need to play that. Uh, we were, I would totally love to get you to get you in on that. Uh, it would be so fun. We need to set up a sometime a visit, one way or another, and, and play some of these games, the three of us, and get some yeah. other people in. But um, it looks like our time is almost up. So I wanted to thank Matt and Joe for joining me on the Hellbender Book Show, and uh, hopefully we'll get uh, Matt back at some point. Matt has a really busy schedule, but he's just a fascinating person to talk to. He has tons of interesting insights into horror and life experiences, and uh, we will be following Joe's audio career um, with great interest. Um, so thank you so much, my friends, for joining me. Oh, Happy to um, be here. All right, well, this is the Hellbender Radio Show, and I'm your host, Kyle Alexander Romine. Oh.